Hi, this is QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cushwood, Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by, no, not Room Now Live. It's brought to you by the April, our campaign on psoriatic arthritis. It's PSA all the way in April. Watch out for all the news that's fit to print on PSA starting April 1st. This week, we're not going to do lessons from the clinic. We're going to do lessons from RNL. In fact, we're going to take questions from RNL. RNL Room Now Live is a meeting you go to where you get your questions answered. We had tons of questions, big, long um, um, a panel discussions and Q&As with the audience, and we did not get around to all of them, so I'm going to answer them all this week. Today, we're going to talk about many of the questions that came in on psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. So let me begin with a question from... Um, KCU, uh, if you have someone with liver disease, what drug do you prefer to give them? And does it make their, that's certainly one that doesn't make their liver worse. Well, again, we're talking about psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis here. Liver disease, fatty liver is not uncommon, right? Alcoholism, not uncommon. You should be worried about liver disease in patients with psoriasis. And this is in fact where all the risk behind methotrexate and liver disease comes from. It was from data accrued many years ago in a psoriasis subset, many of whom had liver disease, fatty liver, alcoholic liver disease, etc. So you wouldn't want to use methotrexate or leflunamide, or for that matter, probably not even a JAK inhibitor, because there is some signal with JAK inhibitors and IL-6 inhibitors, although um, IL-6 inhibitors are not advocated in psoriatic disease. JAKs are making their way. You might have put that at the back of the list. You do have many other effective options to treat skin or joint psoriatic disease, and that would include the IL-17, IL-23 inhibitors, the IL-1223 inhibitor, ustekinumab, um, even cyclosporin uh, can be used safely in patients with liver disease. Have you ever run into a dermatologist only wants to give topical and won't escalate it when they fail the topical? Yeah, that's actually like 90% of all dermatologists. What we in rheumatology love to collaborate with are what we call medical dermatologists who are not adverse to using DMARDs and biologics to treat either psoriatic skin or joint disease. But the vast majority of dermatologists do start with topicals or use PUVA. But again, psoriasis is too labor intensive. They would be best to refer them to you and you would do well to establish a relationship so they could facilitate that referral to you. Um, tips for a rheumatologist planning on practicing in a rural area. I'm going to partner that with the next question, which is tips for the rheumatologist who's in a rural area who has no access to a dermatologist, the closest one's five hours away. Well, it is not easy in a rural area. I think you do need to perfect this art of peer-to-peer consultation. Uh, and especially in dermatology, where there's a lot of patients that you're going to see in rheumatology who having a dermatologist who you can talk to, who you can share patients with, even if it is 5, 10, 12 hours away, two states away, it doesn't matter. You need a relationship. I have a good relationship with the docs at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm in Texas. They're in Cleveland. I can call them and ask them questions. I can do a peer-to-peer consultation with them by video to discuss a case. I can refer a case to them that they can do telemedicine with. This is all possible, but you do have to do the groundwork of establishing peers that will meet your needs, whether that's dermatology, GI, etc. How do you deal with these patients and depression? Um, if you were at our session, I think you would have seen that when we asked this question of our audience, how many of you are screening for depression in your psoriasis and psoriatic patients? It was about 10, 15 percent. And kudos to those rheumatologists who are doing that. It would be, I mean, you're always throwing a bunch of paper at your patients anyway. Fill out this form, this form, this form, this form. It wouldn't hurt to add in, you know, a Beck inventory, which is about a one-pager. But there's actually shorter depression screens, three-question depression screen. You know, do you have depression? Have you considered, you know, suicide at any time in your recent past? You know, um, do you have a strong... Uh, history of alcohol abuse. All of those are wrapped around depression and a, a suicide risk. I think that it would not be unreasonable to add this um, to all your patients, um, but especially those with uh, psoriatic disease and spondyloarthritis. 
Um, Ducravacitinib, the TIC2 inhibitor, will this have a black box warning like the rest of the JAK inhibitors? We don't know that. I mean, it is in the JAK family. TIC2 is one of the four JAKs, if you will. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it is very much the same as far as intracellular signaling and risks. But the data is still out. I mean, so far the signal seems to be very low, but that's in small clinical trials. I mean, you might need thousands and thousands of patients to identify a real risk of um, venous thromboembolic events or cardiovascular events. And remember, the JAK inhibitor risk is largely for VTEs, PE and DVT, um, especially in elderly, especially in people who are obese, especially in people who have prior VTE events. And then this risk of cardiovascular disease, a lot of big splash on that recently, but it's all in high-risk people over age 65, prior MI, um, not well-controlled, high disease activity, etc. cetera. Uh, again, I would guess, I'm just guessing here, that they will get the same black, black box warning. It's not a black box anyway, by the, anymore, by the way. It's, it's a box warning is how it is referred to. Um, when using IL-17s, do you screen for particular fungal infections in endemic areas? No. There's no good screening test for fungal infections if you're in the histo belt or if you're in the southwest uh, of the United States for a coccidioidomycosis. Um, and most of the fungal risk with IL-17 inhibitors, you know, uh, TH17, IL-17, very important in control of candida infections, mucosal candida, surface candida, uh, less likely systemic candida, but in knockout mice, if you knock out IL-17, high risk. With the, all the IL-17 inhibitors that are on the market right now, there is a very low signal. Going into the clinical trials, we worried about there was going to be a lot of IL-17-related, inhibition-related candidal infections, and really we haven't seen any um, in the clinical trials or since. That goes up a little bit as we discussed at Room Now Live with the dual inhibitors, and there's a few of them. The next one that might be approved might be bimikizumab. It's an IL-17A and IL-17F inhibitor. There's a few dual IL-17 inhibitors out there. They go from a less than 5% risk of candidal infections to a 15, 16, 17% risk. So you might need, but not, do we see other candle infections of IL-17? Potentially, you could see things like um, crypto and pneumocystis and aspergillus. Those are like the big candle infections that people die from with immunosuppression. But really, we haven't seen much of that either. So I no, I wouldn't do any screening. I wouldn't worry about that. Um, but you keep your eyes open for that. Um, if a patient keeps getting recurrent candida, would you change the biologic? Yeah, I change from an IL-17 inhibitor to boom, an IL-23 or a 12-23 or any of the other one, any other other one of the you know eight approved therapies for psoriatic disease. Um, how would you treat candida infections while on a biologic? You know, first time it is a diflucan, single dose. If you think the patient's very immunosuppressed, you can give a dual dose um, course of diflucan, and then you're kind of done. Um, I think if you get recurrent infections, I think you need to switch from IL-17 inhibition to another MOA. Um, what's your favored biologic in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis in the setting of prior granulomatous disease with either histo or coccidioido? The answer is none. Well, no, the answer is not TNF inhibitors. Remember, if you have, if you're on a TNF inhibitor and you get TB, you treat the TB and they can still be on the TNF inhibitor. But that's not true if they get a non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection, a typical mycobacteria, MCANZASI, MAI, MAC, etc. Because you never fully resolve that infection. The same is true for chronic invasive fungal infections. Invasive. So if it's candida we're talking about, I'm not worried. You know. Oral thrush, I'm not worried. But invasive, you know, pneumonia and systemic sorts of fungal infections, you can't use a TNF inhibitor. If it was a systemic candle infection, I wouldn't use an IL-17 inhibitor either. But then you have plenty of other choices. All the other biologics, I'm not worried about. I know that there's a small risk in the, in the fine print, but basically those are rare, rare, rare events. You could use a 23 inhibitor, a 12-23 inhibitor, a JAK inhibitor, etc. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't slow me down. Um, 
uh, patient is doing well in clinic remission. How do you manage tapering the patient off a of treatment and you're hoping to reduce the risk of flare if tapering? Well, if you don't want them to flare, don't taper. Again, I'm gigantically against tapering. I think it's crazy. I know patients want it, but yeah, they'd like not to have rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis. You know, let's deal with the realities. The realities are it's a chronic, progressive, even deadly disease. If it takes two drugs to control it, so be it. Don't be trying to wimp out because everybody wants to be on monotherapy or no therapy. If you do that, do so at risk. If you want a rule, my rule is show me one year of remission. I don't care what disease we're talking about here. Show me one year remission, and then we'll talk about having your therapy. And you can choose which half you want to stop. The methotrexate, the biologic, the steroid. You know, obviously you want to stop steroid first. They probably want to stop methotrexate second. You know, biologic be last. But, and again, show me a year remission, and then very, very slow. But you're inviting the devil into your home by doing that. I don't think you should do that. Um, so, um, lastly, how do you classify remission? My answers are pretty simple. Um, I've got one more question after this. My answer is pretty simple. Remission, TJC0, SJC0, no enthesitis, no dactylitis. They can have aches and pains because, guess what? They've had arthritis. You've damaged the architecture, the surrounding supportive structures. They're going to have aches and pains and stiffness and whatnot, but TJC0, SJC0, or one or less, yeah, that's remission. You can use the more formal MDA remission, minimal disease activity, but you're not a clinical trialist in psoriasis, are you? If you are, then you know what that definition uh, means. Let me end with a question from John Goldman. Can treatment of psoriasis make joints worse? And can treatment of joints make psoriasis worse? Well, that's just crazy talk, isn't it, John? Well, treatment of the joints could make psoriasis worse by how? using a TNF inhibitor and then inducing the paradoxical reaction of TNF inhibitor-induced psoriasis. It's been described, it's been described in psoriatic patients where their skin can get worse even though you've controlled the skin disease. Is there an example where you could be treating the psoriasis and make the joints worse? Oh boy. Um, I, you know, there's a, there are reports of vetalizumab being used in IDB and it not controlling this, the, 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 the joints, but making, um, controlling the, the gut, but not controlling the joints. You know, there clearly there are examples of IL-17 and IL-23 and 12-23 having fabulous control over skin. Again, POSSE 90, POSSE 100 numbers, truly impressive, but their ACR20 scores may not be as impressive. So you may need to do more than a single targeted biologic targeting either IL-17, IL-23, or 12N23. In such cases, you need a DMARD. Oh my, you may even need combination biologics. More on that in the next QD clinic. Take care. Welcome to QD clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cushwood Room. Now QD clinic is brought to you by PSA All The Way, our April campaign focused solely on psoriatic arthritis. Usually QD Clinic is about lessons from the clinic. This week, QD Clinic is questions from Room Now Live 2022. Today, questions from the rheumatoid arthritis session. We had two of them, chock full of questions. First, what's the best way to improve adherence? in RA patients, and all patients for that matter. And I think it really begins and ends with you and trust. In my session where I talked about um, refractory or difficult to treat RA, I talked about shared decision-making and that that's the beginning of patient success because that's the beginning of patient trust. It's not easy. It requires you to get out of your usual rhythm uh, and flow and spend more time listening and letting the patient talk. But again, it is about your getting trust. That's like, I think the single best tool. Uh, education is a way of overcoming that. That's part of shared decision-making using patient decision aids and whatnot. But I think, uh, again, it really is the trust factor, which means your ability to impart 
urgency and need for continuing medicine becomes more effective the more you treat the patient, not so much on the first visit, more on the fourth and the eleventh visit. So again, the sooner you do those things that gain that trust, the better off you're going to be. Second, is anyone uh, using the PRISM RA test and do they find it very uh, valuable? Um, it's commercially available. It's FDA approved. Some people are using it. I would never use it. Why? Because it's one, not a biomarker. Two, it is a test that is designed to make you about 30, 40% smarter in your decision making, meaning if they have the molecular signature in the test, then you shouldn't use a TNF inhibitor. And that makes you, again, 30 to 40% brighter. I've talked during my session about just using um, things like seropositivity, especially in early disease or first DMARD patients, where your odds of getting a better response in seropositive patients using certain drugs goes up 10 to 20%. On the other hand, you could use this test, which tells you when not to do certain things. Gee, that sounds like my mother. Um, and what's the workflow on that? You want to start a TNF inhibitor. You're going to order the test. The test gets ordered. The test goes to their billing people. They submit a claim. They tell the patients that this could cost as much as $125. You're going to get an answer back in two weeks, three weeks. How long? In the meantime, the patient could have been on a TNF inhibitor that you could have started right away. You're going to know if you're going to hit a home run on a TNF inhibitor really in the first four weeks first two or three injections. You're not looking for a base hit. You're looking for home runs. I, I would never use this. It's, um, it's expensive. It's needless. I'm doing quite well without it. What's your best clue for differentiating between seronegative RA and CPPD in someone who has persistent MCP synovitis? Well, clearly, serologies would help. Radiographic appearance of a typical uh, RA erosions would help. But the radiographic appearance is really distinctive for CPPD. And your only choices here are either tap the joint, get a synovial biopsy, get the synovial fluid, do um, micro, uh, uh, crystal identification, or x-rays. And x-rays are the way to go. Um, conventional x-ray is as useful, um, actually more useful, than is MRI. And there you're looking for pericapsular calcification, hook osteophytes. Um, there are very distinctive findings. The x-ray appearance of the MCP between CPPD and RA are very different. Talk to your radiologist and you'll see what he says. Tim Lonsky asks about, in my seronegatives, and trying to further distinguish what they are, he, he, and I, I, I like his approach, he orders uh, 14338. What's What's my perspective on that? I will sometimes do that as well. When 1433 ADA came out, a test that's got the same kind of characteristics as does CCP and um, maybe CCP more than RA, meaning that it's sort of specific. Um, it, um, it is associated, found earlier in, in the disease process. It, it does associate with a radiographic risk. Um, and whatnot. So I started ordering a lot of um, newly diagnosed patients, RF, CCP, and 1433 ADA. You could throw into that mix anti-carbamylated P antibodies, not usually commercially available. And the question is, how much better will you do if you do a 1433 ADA or anti-carb P to your usual profile? And the answer is not much. So I have found it to be minimally additive in my understanding of seronegative patients. I may do it in patients I'm puzzled by with seronegative disease. I gotta move fast. Refractory RA with exudative effusions. Any recommendations? Yeah, exudative effusions are due to cancer, 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 infection, 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 and then way down on the list, I mean like that's 50 plus percent cancer, 20, 30% infection, and like 3% RA, or an autoimmune disease a connective tissue disease, if you will. So I would wear, I would go after synovial tissue, get a synovial biopsy. Um, obviously, you've done synovial fluid analyses, but they aren't good at making it cancer or an infection diagnosis. You need biopsy. You need to get pulmonary involved. How long do you keep a patient on cyclosporin, and do I use it in combination with methotrexate? Almost always in combination with methotrexate. Um, uh, I have patients who've been on methotrexate and cyclosporin for a long time. I mean, like three, four, five years. 
and that's just due to vigilance on dosing. I start out at about three milligrams per kilogram. I go no higher than five milligrams per kilogram. I watch blood pressure and creatinine like a hawk. I tell the patient what their, their stop dead creatinine level is. And again, you have to keep it within 30% of baseline. So if your baseline creatinine is 1.0, it can go no higher than 1.3. Once you start seeing high blood pressure and creatinine's creeping up, that's the beginning of the end on cyclosporin. Um, side effects with long-dose steroids at 2.5 milligrams a day. Again, I pointed out the two papers that showed higher cardiac events, higher hospitalizable serious infections, even at 1, 2, and 3 milligrams per day. You can talk yourself into thinking 2.5 is safe for a long period of time. The data um, says that that's not absolutely true. Yes, there are some people who can get away with it, but not many. Um, can um, you get better uh, insight into RA using synovial fluid molecular analyses compared to synovial biopsy analyses? And I think that I, most of my early career was spent on looking at this. And the bottom line is synovial fluid doesn't really reflect what's always going on in the synovium. Uh, and therefore, uh, there are no studies showing predictive um, profiling as was shown in, this, uh, in that session um, that we had um, by using synovial fluid analyses. Sorry. And then lastly, does using Rayos have any benefit um, if you're using steroids? And again, I never use Rayos. I never use Acthar. I mean, they are expensive steroids. You know why they have utility? Because the people who make them make money on a drug that's dirt cheap. There's no proven value to them. I would never use them. Tune in for more questions from Room Now Live 2022. This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by PSA All The Way, our campaign on psoriatic arthritis throughout the month of April. Be sure to tune in starting Friday, April 1st. Our first great um, Tuesday night rheumatology session, which is going to run all month, every Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific, we're going to have a patient perspectives, what patients say about PSA. Then we're going to have two journal clubs, and we're going to have a physician controversies and PSA panel. All this on Tuesday night starting this week. Watch out for the invite coming into your inbox. You can sign up for the webinar. It's one hour. It'll be good. I promise. Our first question. This is our um, sessions on questions from RNL 2022. We're going to handle questions uh, uh, seen during the lupus session. We had three great speakers, Sonali Narain, Peter Lipsky, and Joan Merrill. I'll be taking some of their questions. Uh, approximately when will the recorded lectures be available to view? Those of you who are registered for the event will be able to see um, the a rehash or a repeat presentations from that starting next Monday, I believe, so roughly two weeks after the um, um, meeting ends. Those will go up online. You'll get an email invite to that. Uh, um, Matt Carroll asked about what do you think about data for urinary IL-16 and lupus nephritis? I think this is the future. I think urinary biomarkers, especially for lupus nephritis, are going to have already proven themselves to be so much better than what's currently out there. Um, urinary galactin binding protein we reported on today. Um, there's another other gal markers and whatnot that are out there that have shown to be so much better than the things that you rely on. Things you rely on are actually quite horrible. They're really not very predictive at all. And that includes C3, C4. That includes uh, the levels of proteinuria, um, double-stranded DNA. Again, you tilt the odds with those historic markers that you use in favor of finding active disease. But truly behaving like good biomarkers, not really. So I think IL-16, Fava and colleagues at John Hopkins, that was a plenary session at ACR back in 2020. Fabulous presentation, became a, I think a New England Journal paper. Um, that looks really good. The problem is that with a lot of these urinary biomarkers, they're not yet prime time, meaning they're not on a checkbox on your lab list. Um, but I, this is the future. I think we need to go there to get better management of lupus nephritis. Is there value to using rituxan followed by um, 
uh, followed four to six months later with Benlista and the control of lupus nephritis. Um, this is from uh, v- Vivian Bunin. And um, Vivian, I think the, sch- the schedule that has been shown is that you use rituximab and then you follow it up immediately with belimumab. Belimumab is an anti-BAF infusion. And what happens with rituximab and why rituximab probably didn't work is that when you give rituximab against CD20, you get a rebound in BAF. And that probably negates the B-cell effects. Um, and you know, BAF is a, um, a B-cell activator. But then you follow it up with belimumab, the anti-BAF, and then you sort of get the full rituximab effect and then a continued belimumab effect. And that was, this has been the, the uh, sequence, there's a number of sequencing studies that have been done. There's three of them that have been done in the last year, um, and, and, and we've talked about them. But you have to give it right away. Again, this is not FDA approved. Um, you'd be doing this on your own in problematic patients. I, another, we had other questions about well, should we be studying rituxan again? The answer is no. It failed. And I know the lupus community doesn't want to hear that. I can say that because I'm not traditionally viewed as a lupus guy, but it didn't work. It didn't work in my practice before they did the trials. And there were problems with the trials. I think rituximab may work if used in combination or other beast. And we're waiting for obentuzumab, another B-cell inhibitor that looks better than rituximab. Those are the trials you're going to wait for. But I think they really might need to be in combination um, to um, to do what's been done in these three sequencing studies that have been done. And that would include the Synbios study, which we talked about. That's S-Y-N-B-I-O-S-E if you want to look it up. Um, do you use Actar gel in any special cases? Nope. Never, not going to do it. No studies to support it. It's grandfathered in. It's a bazillion dollars for a steroid effect that costs 12 cents. Sorry, folks. Um, in what subset of patients would you use either vocalsporin or belimumab in lupus nephritis patients who failed standard induction therapy with cyclosporin or mycophenolate? Um, good question. Hard question. This comes from Alina Flagg. You know, I think that it's pretty simple. I th- it boils down to whether you're a believer in belimumab and you have experience or a believer in vocal spore and have experience. Uh, I find it interesting as someone who does clinical trials and, and my colleagues and peers at clinical trials, the people who did the, tri- the developmental trials for drug A, for instance, are more likely to use that drug A in their clinical practice when that drug becomes available. Um, same, I, I, did, I did the trials in drug B, and so I'm more likely to use drug, drug B. Um, I think this decision of belimumab versus vocal sporin, um, two different MOAs, both have been shown to work in lupus nephritis. Uh, I think belimumab's an IV. And has, uh, you know, and the, the responses to infusion, I think, are a few months, you know, not right away with their first infusion. I think that uh, vocal sporin could be considered, and that's an oral medication. And the responses might be a hair sooner than belimumab. But I think it does boil down to um, your experience and whether you want an infusion or an oral medication. Um, and, and how you're going to monitor these patients, what you're going to worry about. Vocal sporin looks like it's very safe. Belimumab certainly looks to be very safe. Um, I, could, I could advocate for both of them in patients who didn't respond to either cytoxan or mycophenolate. Uh, any pearls um, from the panel on diagnosis of lu- neuropsychiatric lupus um, and um, especially MRI or CSF evidence or antineuronal antibodies? Um, I'm a self-declared expert in this area, and um, I studied this a lot. Not much has changed in this from when I was a fellow and when I was doing practice 10 and 20 years ago. I think it's a neuropsychiatric lupus is a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, and here's the way I think about it. A lupus patient gets admitted to the hospital. We're not talking neuropsychiatric lupus. Lupus gets admitted to the hospital. They're more likely to be admitted to the hospital for a medical problem, an MI, pneumonia, um, a blood clot, um, a side effect of medicine, then to be due to lupus. This is more commonly the case. This is what almost 40 years of practice has shown me. On the other hand, a lupus patient who gets admitted to the hospital with a CNS presentation, it's more likely to be neuropsychiatric lupus than it is going to be a medication problem, steroid psychosis. I only seen like one of those in my career or the effects of uremia or a secondary or another infection. 
So your obligation here is to exclude, again, medical causes, drug causes, concomitant causes, and then neuropsychiatrics are diagnosed of exclusion and unless and, and so there is no one diagnostic test. MRI generally not helpful if you're getting readings of looks like vasculitis. That's a pipe dream. That's a hope. That's not really. There's nothing diagnostic. Vasculitis is increased signal in a pattern that could be due to gliosis as much as inflammation. And in fact, in neuropsychiatric lupus, there is no vasculitis. There is no inflammation. When biopsies were shown bland vasculopathy that looked like what high blood pressure more than anything else. So MRI mainly to exclude, you know, mass lesions, other causes, stroke, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, you're not going to do better with other imaging modalities. There are some people who want to talk about pets and specs and whatnot. I don't know that, that their, their utility has been proven, especially in a cost-effective manner. Um, your best tool is going to be either EEG, if you suspect any uh, seizure activity, or um, CSF studies. The CSF gives you what? Most are fairly benign looking. Some show a, um, a, a minor l- l- lymphocytic pleocytosis. So tube number four can have four to 10 cells. You don't, you don't get back 100 WBCs, all of them being lymphocytes, in a CSF of a lupus cerebritis patient. That's pretty unusual. About 20 to 30% will have a, a lymphocytic pleocytosis. Um, you should, ordering protein is useless. Ordering glucose is useful because there are patients who have very, very low glucose levels in the CSF uh, and that can be due to infection or can be due to lupus cerebritis or neuropsychiatric lupus. I like ordering, um, uh, you can do anti-ribosomal uh, P, that's a serum test. doesn't really perform any better in the CSF. Antineuronal antibodies, I have done plenty of. I've never found them to be useful. I've done plenty of immune complex tests on CSF. Again, if, if they come back positive, it's useful. But how many boxes are you going to check on a limited sample of CSF that you have? I mean, you can't do every test. So I tend not to rely on those because they don't have a very poor return. Um, I think what I'm looking for are abnormalities in the Q-albumin and in the IgG indices. So the Q-albumin is a measure of CSF um, to serum albumin measures. It's a CSF albumin times 1,000 divided by the serum albumin using the same units of measure. Um, Normally, you and I, the the Q-albumin is less than nine. Uh, If it's greater than nine, that means that there's an abnormal blood-brain barrier is no longer intact. Turns out that about 30, 40, 50, sometimes 30, 40% of patients with lupus cerebritis will have an elevated Q-album, but only as high as 15, 9 to 15. Beyond that, when you see Q-albums of 30, 100, 200, that's vascular um, events and infection. So you want a Q-album that's in line with cerebritis, meaning it's normal or it's minimally elevated. Next, you want to see in situ production of immunoglobulin, that's the IgG index, IgM index, if you like. However, that test is not valid if the Q-albumin is elevated or abnormal. Again, if the Q-albumin is like gigantically elevated, like again, 30, 50, 100, 75, whatever, then you got other problems and not lupus cerebritis. But if it's minimally elevated or normal, then you need to use other tests to correct for the abnormalities that are that that occur with a non-intact blood-brain barrier. So that's called, um, people do the synthetic rate, that's actually affected to some degree. There's other measures called the IgG loc and others. But again, the higher those abnormalities are, then then the more you can assume there's a significant amount of insight-to production of immunoglobulin, meaning that there's an immune-mediated process going on in the brain. Um, again, all told, I think I can account for um, 40 to 50% of neuropsychiatric lupus just based on the CSF. I can get a few more percent based on uh, the imaging. Uh, and then I'm just left with a whole bunch of patients who I just have to assume it's neuropsychiatric disease. And half of those will respond to steroids, not too quickly, unfortunately. Um, and half of them won't, and you're not going to know the answer. 
again, uh, um, I think talking to someone who sees a lot of neuropsychiatric lupus may help you. Two more questions. What's the clinical relevance for uh, an, a, a positive RNP antibody, but a negative ANA? I think I would worry about, you know, Raynaud's um, um, lung disease, you know, MCTD, but you can't have MCTD without having a very high titer ANA. I mean, you see these patients, but I think I'm not doing tests on patients who don't have symptoms. I'm not ordering serologies to fish for clinical correlations. That's the wrong way to use these tests. Um, lastly, um, what's the info available regarding an ANA following COVID-19? During acute hospitalization in COVID-19 patients, you know, 50, 60, sometimes 70% of patients have ANAs, antiphospholipid antibodies, um, um, and whether they're involved in the pathogenesis is not entirely clear, but they do stay, and they do stay for as, more, as much as six months. So if they're post-COVID um, and, um, you know, and they're within six months, I don't know that I would order an ANA or any serologic test unless I was looking for that diagnosis, myositis, scleroderma, lupus, etc., to show that they still have ANAs or antiphospholipid antibodies lying around, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to treat a lab test? Hopefully not. That's it for QD Clinic. Tune in tomorrow. We have more questions tomorrow, probably about ankylosing spondylitis or hot topics. You'll see. This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic's brought to you by... PSA all the way, Room Now's campaign on psoriatic arthritis all throughout the month of April. Look for it. Not only are we going to bring back Tuesday Night Rheumatology every Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern, what's that, 4 p.m. Pacific time. We're also bringing back a lot of guest blogs on PSA. Look for a weekly survey, our live vote survey, where you get to give your opinions about hot topics, hot issues, hot questions in psoriatic disease. Look for those appearing, I think, in your mailbox every every week. Um, today, we're going to talk about questions from you uh, who attended Room Now Live 2022. These are questions on spondyloarthritis. So this is your spondyloarthritis questions. First question, um, do you ever use Remicade in patients with ulcerative colitis and polyarthritis? And the answer is, of course, yes. Remicade is approved for, one, the treatment of uh, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, both in adults and in pediatrics. The thing to remember about treatment of colitis with infliximab is that the dose, the starting dose is 5 milligrams per kilogram and can go up to 10. The same dosing in, uh, interval 0 to 6 and then every 8 weeks. Um, but as is always the case with IBD, you have to control the gut if you want to control peripheral arthritis. So if this person's having peripheral arthritis and either the gut or the peripheral arthritis is not controlled, you got to get control of the gut. So if infliximab is not going to do it, you got to get other therapies. And, that would, and there's a whole bunch of approved therapies, including recently high-dose JAK inhibitor therapy. So working with a gastroenterologist is probably the single best thing you can do to get control of the polyarthritis associated with ulcerative colitis. Um, I have a few patients with ulcerative colitis and polyarthritis who failed everything. A lot of questions about ulcerative colitis. Um, what to do? Well, again, the same thing. Work with the GI person. Think about um, newer therapies, which would include um, um, the JAK inhibitors, uh, mainly tofacitinib at, at higher doses. Uh, and there's a protocol for starting uh, patients with ulcerative colitis on a higher dose and then coming down to a normal dose so as to avoid a lot of the risks we're worried about these days with high-dose JAK inhibition, mainly VTE and maybe cardiovascular events in high-risk individuals. Um I may not be remembering this right, but a few review courses ago, it was said it was okay to use methotrexate with NASH. Yes, you can use methotrexate with NASH. In fact, that's part of the new ACR guidelines. Um, patients with NASH uh, and rheumatoid arthritis can uh, acceptably receive methotrexate therapy if their LFTs are not wacko and sky high and worrisome. Um, 
uh, and their NASH is stable, and they have no other risk factors that would preclude the use of methotrexate in someone who has um, a fatty liver. Uh, do you have any data about hydroxychloroquine in pregnancy? Again, this is on spondyloarthritis, but I'll take it anyway. Um, the answer is there's plenty of data about hydroxychloroquine in pregnancy. You get better control of um, the disease during pregnancy. There's less miscarriages. Um, maternal health is better. Um, there's less problems with um, fetal loss from antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. I mean, it's the one drug you definitely should continue throughout pregnancy, no questions asked. I think there's overwhelming data about that. Any um, data about gluten and spondyloarthritis or psoriatic arthritis? There is data. It's kind of weak. What we do know about diet data for these disorders is that anti-inflammatory diets, there seems to be some evidence to suggest it might work. Um, anti-inflammatory diets could be called either Mediterranean diets or could be called no-gluten, low-carbohydrate diets. And um, in our practice, we've seen a ton of patients who've done incredibly well by going gluten-free with their psoriatic arthritis, with their psoriasis, and with their spondyloarthritis. Now, we have no controls, and no, this is not due to weight loss because of diet, okay? But well-done studies are kind of lacking here. There's a few studies that says that a low-gluten diet might be uh, advantageous, but there's probably more that says it's not. Again, patients love to do dietary manipulation. Um, don't let that happen at the um, risk of getting worse and not taking a more effective agent. But there are some patients who may want to pursue that. Now, and again, it works well in our hands because we give them like a 12-page handout on what a gluten-free, low-carbohydrate diet is. Don't take this, do take that. Uh, really specific instructions. What's your experience with colitis and IL-17 inhibitors in SPA? And mine is like the literature. I have, I think I have um, one PSA patient and one um, SPA patient who has, um, and actually this is fictional because if I say I have a patient, I have to report it as an adverse event. So let's just say I'm imagining one a patient who has on who's on an IL-17 inhibitor and develops bloody diarrhea and gets biopsied and gets shown to have colitis. The question is, is it due to the IL-17 inhibitor or is it due to occult inflammatory bowel disease? When I've encountered this, much to my surprise, it's been due to occult inflammatory bowel disease. Because if you stop the IL-17 inhibitor and the problem never goes away, well, then it was an occult IBD problem, uh, or you magically caused disease that never went away with the IL-17 inhibitor. That's not generally the case. The risk of um, colitis with uh, IL-17 inhibitor is like, was like one or two in a thousand um, with, without a background of spondylitis. It's like seven per thousand patient years with um, spondylitis. Not surprising given what we know about spondylitis, terminal ileitis, all that data back in the in the 90s about treating uh, occult um, regional enteritis or terminal ileitis with sulfasalazine. That's why they may have gotten better, but now we know the real story on that. Is upadacitinib approved for AS and AXPA at this time? The answer is no. Tofacitinib is. Watch any day now. This is, um, I'm recording this on the, um, the, the 29th um, of March. I'm going to guess within the next two weeks it, it will be. That's just my guess, okay? But uh, it's soon to be approved would be my suggestion. Watch room now for an update on that. How robust is the data about JAK uh, inhibitors, either tofacitinib and UPA, uh, in ankylosing spondylitis? Would you um, do this before uh, a TNF inhibitor or an IL-17 inhibitor in AS patients who may not want to have injections? It's a question from John Goldman in Atlanta. Thanks, John. The, um, the, I think the data is really strong. 
it's really strong. The mavens in this area think this data is as good as any that they've seen with, you know, the IL-17 um, trials, of which there are many, the Coast trials with Ixikizumab and, and all the other trials with, with Secukinumab. Um, but the JAK data looks really good and really strong. And, you know, I think it's going to boil down to a formulary issue rather than a preference issue. But, you know, guidelines are going to ultimately say anything that's proven to work you know, it's going to slot into an algorithm based on how it was studied. All of these are going to be studied in people who um, um, either failed nothing or failed a TNF inhibitor. So they'll get that approval. Um, so theoretically, they're all equipotent here. A TNF and IL-17, um, a JAK inhibitor, yeah, it might fall down in, fall into whichever you prefer or whether patient will or will not take an injection or a pill. Uh, do young female patients ever get enthesitis related to HLA-B27? Why did the criteria always just talk about um, young males? Usually it's over the age of, what, seven or nine? Um, and that's statistically where the numbers are. Older um, kids um, over the age of seven, uh, up to age 16, make up the biggest group of that juvenile, um, either enthesitis-related arthritis group or the juvenile, what's called juvenile spondylitis. But there are plenty of w young women in this group as well. I've had several. Um, they presented with isolated, severe, disabling um, Achilles tendonitis or other forms of enthesopathy that prevented them from participating in um, uh, high school and collegiate sports, put them on back then a long time ago, a TNF inhibitor. Now, more recently, you have more options, uh, including IL-17 uh, inhibitors that would work very, very well here. Anyway, that's it for questions from Room Now Live. We got one more tomorrow. Tune in and watch for our campaign on PSA all the way. This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by PSA all the way. Look out for our Tuesday night rheumatology starting next Tuesday regarding PSA. We're going to do questions from Room Now Live. These questions come from mainly the hot topic se session and also the rheumatoid arthritis session. What is your preferred drug for uveitis? Well, it's TNF inhibitors. The, anti the antibody-based TNF inhibitors uh, are better than the receptor-based therapies. Uh, I think what you're asking is, uh, do they do the other new drugs work here? And no, IL-17 and IL-23 inhibitors are not indicated for uveitis. In fact, um, at least IL-17 may make it worse. There is some evidence of that. Next question, any special consideration for your patient who has hypermobility and systemic um, arthritis? I don't know what that means. Let's just take it apart. Systemic JIA, meaning Stills disease. Yeah, I have a bunch of Stills disease patients who actually have hypermobility, and it's called fibromyalgia with, with, with hypermobility, and they really don't have systemic JIA. Systemic arthritis, there really isn't um, an inflammatory systemic arthropathy associated with hypermobility. What is associated with hypermobility is, um, as you know, a lot of tendon um, and uh, problems and muscular uh, and periarticular pains, but no synovitis, no effusions, no true enthesitis. And, um, and a lot of these patients, in my opinion, actually have, they may have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome if you want to go that far. Um, you want to see if they meet Baton's criteria for hypermobility, but a lot of them have fibromyalgia and that should be sought for. Uh, do we need to evaluate TMJ involvement in adult patients who get referred? We're talking about uh, kids who had JIA who get referred to or get transferred or transitioned to the adult rheumatology clinic. Do we need to evaluate them for uh, eye disease and TMJ disease? Uh, eye disease, generally not. By the time they're adults, if they haven't developed uveitis, they don't, certainly don't need to go as they did when they were kids and were being followed either every six months or every year by the ophthalmologist. TMJ disease uh, is more common in JIA because of the, the um, problems with bone growth and having inflammatory disease. Um, TMJ is not uncommon in kids, but 
uh, as they, and especially also in systemic JIAs as well as the polyarticulars. So if they have involvement, you should refer them. I, again, I hate to keep harping back to fibromyalgia, but in my experience, a lot of patients with TMJ really just have fibromyalgia. Uh, do you continue biologics like IL-1 indefinitely for SJAA and Stills disease in adults? Um, question for Dr. Hausman or Dr. Cush. And the answer is no. Um, you don't continue it indefinitely. Um, the vast majority of patients are going to have Stills disease. Uh, and this is in kids and adults for either eight months to eight years, and you don't know when. So you continue it until you get them into clinical remission, no fever, no rash, no serositis, no lymphadenopathy, no arthritis, and laboratory remission, meaning normalization of acute phase reactants and white count, and their anemia is gone. And when you have that for a year, then you're invited to slowly withdraw therapy. If they have active stills disease, don't worry, it'll come back and remind you right away it's with something very objective, not like I feel crappy or I'm not doing as well or I have more aches. No, it's going to be the return of fever, the return of rash, the white count, sed rate, and CRP are going to go up and you're going to know that they need to continue to be on therapy. Right now, there is no good biologic or biomarker way of knowing that it's safe to stop therapy. But know that most people will go off therapy, especially IL-1 inhibition or IL-6 inhibition, if that's what you're using. Um, RA patients who have burnt out disease but no obvious signs of inflammation, what do you do? What do you consider? Well, we, I think we talked about this in my session on refractory RA, and this is where the ULAR definition says in such patients where it's really hard to tell whether inflammation is going on, meaning it's hard to discern whether they have synovitis or effusions. They're certainly not going to have hot joints. Their sedrate and CRP may be unrevealing, as it is in more than half of patients with RA anyway. You may use ultrasound as your def defining intervention here to know whether those patients may need further therapy or not. A question for Dr. Pope was, I have a patient with RA and fibromyalgia. I cycle through all the DMARDs, all the biologics, and a JAK. Patient does well for 6 to 12 months, then gets worsening pain. Would Vectra help? Would I try Anakinra? Well, Vectra is not going to help you. I mean, I don't, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't qualify as a biomarker. The data that they lay out proves the past, not the future. It makes inferences that you can make from your own exam and your other, and other labs that you get. Um, I wouldn't do a Vectra and you could try Anakinra, but if the patient uh, has been refractory to all your best therapies for RA, don't you think it's the fibromyalgia that's screaming here? I would think about that. Do you believe that, um, well, IL-6, do IL-6 inhibitors have the longest retention rate in your practice? The answer is no. I think that the longest retention rate in practice still belongs to methotrexate. There are multiple studies showing that. Um, and in fact, our biologics are not quite as good as we'd like to think they are. I mean, dropout rates on biologics over four to five years averages at uh, more than 10% a year. And it's not really every year. It's a little front-loaded, more in the first and second year, less in the third and fourth and fifth year. But it averages out to about more than 10% per year. Recent study, actually, of um, psoriatic patients and looked at their biologic persistence over a five-year period. 35% uh, or less were still taking the same biologic five years later. So, again, most of our drugs, we do have to cycle them to maintain better disease control. And I think that may be biologically the smart thing to do. Rheumatoid arthritis especially is a disease that escapes control quite commonly. And maybe the thing to do is try to stay one step ahead of the devil by switching your MOAs um, in a program fashion. Those kind of studies have never been done. What type of screening do you do to assess for multimorbidity in your RA patients? Um, and, and should you leave this to PCPs? No, you shouldn't leave the PCPs. You're the expert of RA. You know the implications here as far as multimorbidity, that it is more common, that it adds to poorer outcomes. You have to tackle multimorbidity. So if the patient isn't seeing the primary care as they are supposed to and are probably not, you should be doing you know, hemoglobin A1Cs. You should be doing, you know, PSA and ordering, um, you know, pap smears on patients who, in whom that's appropriate. You should be doing the screening things. 
and or demanding it, requiring it for your continued involvement that they go to a primary care for those things. But I think you have to ask the question annually, just like you annually should ask about influenza and vaccination. Um, I think you might want to annually assess multimorbidity in patients. We talked earlier in the questions that were uh, offered up about the routine use of a depression questionnaire in practice. That seems to make sense to me. Um, do you need to adjust methotrexate in patients with diabetes? The answer is no, absolutely not. You only dose adjust methotrexate because of renal insufficiency. Um, you may dose adjust for better disease control, meaning patients not doing well. You go to oral split dosing or go to parenteral. What does that mean? Patients on 15 milligrams a week um, and they're not doing well. You could change that to 15 milligrams sub-Q or I am, but sub-Q and they'll get 100% absorption and likely that equates to a delivering a better dose. Or you can keep it oral by going with three pills twice a day, once a week, let's say on Friday. By going to split dose oral at doses less than 15 milligrams, you're going to get closer to 100% absorption and do better. But worrying about toxicity and whatnot, you have to downward adjust in patients who are unreliable and patients who, and sometimes that's the elderly, but it really shouldn't be if you have good coaching and a scheme set up where the patients can safely take their medicine, but mainly renal insufficiency. Um, Let's see. Um, I have a patient who's carrying a diagnosis of long-haul COVID, meaning that they have prolonged symptoms due to COVID that occurred sometime in the past. Let's say it's more than three to four months ago. The patient has continues to have severe fatigue, a flu-like symptoms, and continues to have abnormal labs with an ANA and RF and CCP antibodies. The inflammation markers, however, are normal. Um, as was discussed here in earlier questions, you can, after COVID, um, continue to have autoantibodies for more than six months. Um, that doesn't necessarily equate to the other long-haul symptoms. More than 50% of patients with COVID will have these musculoskeletal and constitutional complaints for up to a year. Um, having those does not necessarily mean, along with the autoantibodies, does not mean that they're going to progress into lupus, RA, vasculitis, whatever. Again, you're going to have to make those diagnoses on grounds more than the laboratory tests alone because those can be misleading in this situation. Um, what do you think is most important in preventing RA? This was asked during the session with Karen Kostenbatter, and she answered that was amongst the options of what could be done to lower the risk of getting RA in the future, smoking, cessation, weight control, uh, alcohol, um, vitamin D, and uh, omega-3 fatty acid use. She said, hands down, it's smoking. Um, but they're all important. They all can factor in there. Two questions about turmeric. Does it have a role in preventing RA? No. Does turmeric have a role in treating arthralgias? Yes. Um, it has, um, in many ways, COX-2-like effects. Um, how long would you treat a patient with arthralgia uh, with hydroxychloroquine if they were double positive, meaning RF and CCV positive? So you're talking about someone who has preclinical RA and they're double positive and you're concerned and because arthralgias are using hydroxychloroquine, I wouldn't, but you're welcome to do so. And I'm, and, but you don't have an endpoint. I think the conventional thinking right now on preclinical RA is the ones who have CC, who are CC positive or those who are double positive. You watch more closely. They have a greater than 50% odds of developing RA. And then as soon as they get synovitis, then you step up with your best drug first, not your weakest drug first, your best drug first. If you want to treat with what you think is a mild drug for mild symptoms, you can do that, but there's no evidence for that. Wait. Wait a year, a year and a half. We're going to see the data from the STOP RA trial. It's a very large, multiple thousands patients with these symptoms who are going to be randomized to either hydroxychloroquine or placebo, and we'll look at the outcomes. We'll know that in the next year or so. Um, last question in patients with RA but not on JAK inhibitors, do you routinely screen for lipids? And if so, how often? I don't. Um, but then again, if you're the rheumatologist managing their comorbidity, you should do that as part of comorbidity management. Um, and the bottom line is that control of inflammation drives down 
um, I'm sorry, drives up lipid numbers. So if you have a very active RA and you check their lipids and they're normal, that may be falsely low because of inflammation. And then if you give them a TNF inhibitor or a JAK inhibitor or an IL-6 inhibitor, two drugs that we know, those last two we know drive up lipids, um, it's not surprising that the lipid levels will go up. And then if they're really elevated, then you might need to put them on a statin. But so far what we see have seen is that um, uh, including the NTRAC trial, Actemra or tocilizumab versus etanercept, followed for three years. Um, yes, the IL-6 did drive up um, lipid levels in patients, and that was not associated with increased risk of cardiovascular events. So, again, it's, it's an artifact of inflammation control. That's it. Be sure to tune in next week for PSA All the Way.